Hello and welcome to this episode of STATS, the podcast where we share the accomplishments of the Department of Surgery at Baylor Scott & White Medical Center in Temple, Texas. I'm your host, Dr. Lonnie Gentry. The STATS podcast is sponsored by Dr. Harry Papa Constantino, the chair of the Department of Surgery. In fact, for this episode, Dr. Papa, as he prefers to be called, joins me as co-host. Dr. Papa, welcome to the host chair of STATS. Awesome. Thanks, Lonnie. Our guest today is Dr. Walter Peters, the Chief Medical Officer of Baylor Scott & White Health. Dr. Peters is also a surgeon, and that is how Dr. Papa and I know him. We knew him before he moved into the executive suite. Dr. Papa and I both consider Dr. Peters a good friend and are thrilled to talk with him today. Dr. Peters, welcome to the Stats Podcast. Well, thank you, Lonnie. It's good to be here with you guys. Dr. Peters spoke at our surgical grand rounds this morning on the subject of leadership in medicine. It was a great talk, and we're going to use his talk as a springboard for our discussion. So if you wonder where some of these questions come from, they came from Dr. Peter's presentation. With that in mind, Dr. Papa, get us started. Awesome. Thanks, Lonnie. Dr. Peters, today you're the CMO of the largest non-for-profit healthcare system in Texas. Did you ever think you'd be in this position at any point in your career? Never. Absolutely not. Uh, as you know, I trained as a colon rectal surgeon, and when I started practice, my main goal was just to be the best colon rectal surgeon I could be. And nowhere in my career planning, right up until the moment the interim CMO job was offered to me, did I really have that as one of my career goals. Yeah. So we all know the the job description of being a surgeon, of being a physician, et cetera. But, you know, one of the things that would be beneficial to members of the department and the hospital is... What is the job description of a CMO? What are some of the things that you've learned from being in that position? Well, different healthcare systems define the job differently. But in the Baylor Scott and White system, the chief medical officer has primary responsibility for anything related to the quality of care we deliver and the safety of the care provided by our hospitals and clinics. Now, that takes many forms. One of the first lines of defense for safety and quality is proper credentialing to make sure that people who join our medical staff or join our system have the appropriate training and expertise to deliver good quality care. Then once they're in our system, we also have to do peer review to make sure that people are continuing to do a good job and to identify opportunities for improvement where we can. And so I'm responsible for peer review. We also measure quality in many ways, and quality is the the good that we're doing. And so I'm responsible for the teams that measure quality and then report it to various governmental agencies. I also am responsible for safety, which is the absence of harm. And we have teams that measure that and look at harm that does occur and try to learn how that happened so we can learn as a system and improve and get better. Now, I don't do all of this by myself. I have the opportunity to lead teams of subject experts that take care of all of this, but I'm responsible for coordinating their efforts and making sure that we keep our eye on quality and safety and make sure that's an important component of everything we do. So clearly some big responsibilities uh, across the system. Given that, if you could choose one or two things that really excites you the most about your job, what would that be? We have so many incredibly talented people within our system that we have all of the elements to be the best healthcare system in the country. I, I really believe that. And so what excites me is to be in a position where 
I can help introduce the right people to each other to coordinate those activities and break down silos and allow every one of our team members to do the best work possible. And if we can do that, then I know we're going to continue to get better and better. Already, we have outstanding quality provided by our clinicians. Uh, 71% of our hospitals achieved CMS five-star rating in the last ratings compared to 11% of hospitals nationwide. So that's just evidence that we already have really good people. My job is just to remove barriers to allow them to do their best work. You've explained what excites you about your current position. What scares you about your current position? Well, I wouldn't use the word scared because you and I are surgeons, and I think compared to things you see in surgery, there's nothing about my job that's scary. (laughs) But I do think there's some things that I'm concerned about. On the macro level, looking at healthcare, we're entering a new era where artificial intelligence is being applied more and more. And I wouldn't say I'm scared, but I'm concerned to make sure that we make use of this technology, but do so in a smart way and apply it appropriately. The other thing I'm really concerned about is more on the human level. Our care providers have been through an awful lot with the COVID pandemic, um, rising uh, cost of health care, efforts to control those costs to make health care affordable. Now we're asking our providers to help us in redesigning the health care delivery system to make it more customer-centric, more patient-centric. And so that's an awful lot of change to ask people to go through. So I am concerned that we take good care of our own people. Our vision statement is empowering you to live well, and I want to make sure that we include our physicians in the you, because we have to take care of our own team members, physicians, APPs, and nurses, in order to deliver on our vision. So let's talk briefly about you, how you got here. Education, clearly residency, medical school, residency, etc. What about the non-medical, non-surgical education that you went through? Uh, Do you have an MBA and do you feel like you needed an MBA or need an MBA to be in your position? Well, I do think the MBA was very helpful to me. I got the MBA through an online program after I had already been in practice of surgery uh, for probably at least 20 years. And I did it because I was the president of a 10 surgeon multi-specialty group and I had 40 plus employees depending on me for a paycheck and I wanted to do a better job running that. What I found it did for me, though, it didn't teach me so much new knowledge as much as it just gave me a different way to organize the knowledge I had already acquired. A lot of the business of running a practice I had learned uh, the hard way through experience, but an MBA allowed me to think about things in a different manner. We talked about healthcare policy. We talked about uh, the Affordable Care Act when it had just first come online, and that really just helped me organize my thinking, and I think it is beneficial for surgeons to do that. Because so much of our training through undergraduate and medical school and even residency, we're really solo practitioners. We're trying to stand out. We're trying to be noted uh, as a key contributor because you want to get into the best medical school or the best residency, and then you want to land the best job. And all of a sudden, we're in an environment where you have to be team players. And that's a shift in mindset and a shift in behavior that is emphasized in business training and really not emphasized enough in most places, in medical or surgical training. As you look at the spectrum that's in a department of surgery, you have residents, you have junior faculty, mid-level faculty, senior faculty, etc. What are some jobs and positions, that maturation of career, career goals, 
that might get you to a leadership position over the course of your career? Well, you don't immediately skip from uh, being an attending surgeon responsible only for your own patients to being a system CMO. It's a stepwise progression with just like surgical training, gradual increase in responsibility that you've been given. So what often happens is you do a good job as a new staff surgeon and maybe your department chair or division chief says, look, you have some potential here. Uh, and gives you a project to work on. And so you learn that one little aspect. And if you do a good job of that, you're given another project, maybe a little bigger. Maybe you get a small team together to do another project. And so you start learning these skills about working with other people. It's a lifelong process. I think you have to be a continuous learner to be a a surgical leader. I think you have to be a lifelong learner uh, to do this and have to commit yourself to learning new skills. In my own career, as I already told you, I had no intention of ever being a system CMO, but I want to be a good surgeon, but that led me to be involved in medical staff leadership. So I had to learn those skills. I eventually was the senior partner and president of my surgical group. So I had to learn how to run a group, but these pieces were added gradually. And finally, after 25 or 30 years, you look back and you realize that you've accumulated quite a few different skill sets and pieces of knowledge from the various experiences you've had. So I think for young surgeons starting out, if they have any desire at all to become a surgical leader, you need to look for those opportunities where you have them and just acquire that knowledge and skill one one piece at a time. And essentially what you're really describing to me is something about individual contribution, right? It's taking certain tasks and being the individual that's contributing towards completing the task and learning from whatever that might be, whether it's leadership, whether it's system building, whether it's program building. Right. I think it I think every time you're given a task you need to do the best you can and recognize you're going to learn something from it. You may see it just as a project, just as some work you have to do, but if you reflect on it, you probably learned something along the way. You learned some new skill and mastered some new skill. And I think that's important for surgeons to do because just as I had no intention of ever being a CMO, there is a certain amount of serendipity involved. Sometimes you just happen to be in a position where your next most senior surgeon takes a job somewhere else and all of a sudden you're asked to step in and fill in and you need to be ready. You want to be able to do a good job at that. And so you never know when these opportunities are going to come up. You don't have to plan ahead for it. Sometimes things just happen. Yeah. What's the one thing that you wish you had known from the beginning and how'd you learn it? Well, that was the the topic I chose to try and pass on to your residents and students this morning. And that's based on a question that a medical student asked me uh, four or five years ago. And when I reflected on it, the thing I really wish I'd understood was perspective. When you're a young surgeon just starting out, you care only about your own patients. And that's not wrong, but that's what you're focused on. You want them to do well. That means you want to have the right team members in your OR. You want to have access to OR time. And your world revolves around your practice. And then you need to step back and realize, though, that the person running your OR might have 24 rooms that they're responsible for, or in your case, 32 rooms. And you're just one 32nd of their problem. And that helps explain some of the decisions that you don't always get the the team you want. You don't always get the equipment you want because they have to take care of other surgeons as well. And then you realize that, wow, that OR director reports to a maybe a CMO or a CNO that 
has many other areas of the hospital you're responsible for, and they have a boss they report as part of a system, and you realize that there are bigger considerations sometimes that help make decisions that seem unsupportable. If you're too close to the situation, they seem very rational if you look back and look at the big picture. It's a matter of getting away from the trees so that you can appreciate the forest. And I wish I had learned that much earlier in my career. And for me, it's very similar about hearing two sides of a story. An issue comes up to you and somebody brings something to you and says, okay, this is what it is. I need for that to be fixed. And you're like, okay, well, let me look into it. You try and get the other person's view of what's going on. And and the two things don't exactly match, but to them, it's their perspective. So in that concept, essentially, are we talking about emotional intelligence? Well, I think we're talking about emotional intelligence to realize that on both sides of that story, as you're portraying it, people not only have their interpretation of the facts, but they have how they feel about it. I think what it also touches on, though, is something I mentioned during my uh, talk this morning, and that's Perry's theory of intellectual development, the four stages that you go through where initially you're willing to accept everything is true, false, black, white, yes, no. If my attending tells me something, it must be true, and you accept things unquestionably. And then you get to a stage where you realize that if you've heard two sides of the story, you're probably still missing several other sides of the story, that every every problem, every decision you make has so many different facets, and you have to consider it from so many different points of view that you realize that you have to make the decision, you have to know what basis you're, you're making that decision based on what your own personal beliefs and views are, but you also have to be willing to re-examine your decisions as new evidence or new opinions come to light. You have to accept the fact that you've made the best decision you can, but you might need to change it in the future as more perspectives come to light. And that's the kind of decision-making skill that surgeon leaders have to develop as they go through their career to get way beyond the yes, no, one way of looking at things up to the considering a multiplicity of views and from that trying to distill the best decision you can. Yeah. And I think to me, one of the things that you're really describing is that it's making adjustments to decisions based on new evidence and new information is not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of maturity and a sign of adaptability. Well, one thing I think you're getting at, Harry, is that people talk about the system as if the system makes decisions. The system is not an entity that makes decisions. It's people who work for the system. It's people who are the system who make the decisions. And as, as leaders, whether surgical leaders or any type of leader within our organization, they're well-intentioned individuals with good knowledge base so they wouldn't be in their position, and they're making the best decisions they can. Now, our responsibility as leaders is if we make a wrong decision, to be willing to re-examine that and then make it better. Uh, and not dig in and be too rigid in our thinking that we always know the right answer. And so one myth I like to dispel is that decisions get made by some amorphous entity. No, decisions are made by individuals. You gave us a little parable or a story about the hedgehog and the fox. Tell us a little bit about that and how it relates to perspective in medicine. Well, the parable of the hedgehog and the fox, that dates to a poem by an ancient Greek poet, Archilochus, that most of the works have been lost to history, but fragments uh, remain. And one of the fragments is, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. And this 
fragment of poetry was resurrected in a book in the 1950s by a writer named Isaiah Berlin. And the question was, could you use this, this analogy to categorize writers uh, like Tolstoy or political leaders or military leaders by the way they thought? And a hedgehog has one guiding principle that is all-consuming and directs everything they do. They're relentless in the pursuit of that principle. Whereas a fox is kind of shifty and might be here and there, chasing different directions, doing different things that may not even be related. And the question is, is it better to be a hedgehog totally devoted to one cause or a fox kind of shifting all around doing whatever happens to be opportune at the time? Now, there's a book that I really enjoyed reading. It was on grand strategy by an author named Gaddis. And if you enjoy history, military history, um, political history, it's fascinating book to read. And the argument in, in this book is that really to be an effective leader, you need to be both. That hedgehogs can become so consumed in chasing this one ideal that they fall into all kinds of logistical traps, ignore the availability of resources, and may never reach their goal. Yet foxes have to have some guiding principle or their efforts are all scattered and may not be guided by principle. So really a leader, you have to have that guiding principle like a hedgehog, but you have to have the flexibility and the willingness of the fox to change tactics to get where you're going. And so that, that's the story of the hedgehog and the fox. It's a popular discussion topic in college classes. Uh, throw out some famous writers or artists or political or military leaders and trying to debate based on their, their career whether they were a hedgehog, always consistent, or a fox and willing to shift. And the best leaders, the example given in the book is Abraham Lincoln, was both. He had great guiding principles, but he was willing to change tactics to get where he needed to be. Interesting. You know, one of the things that we hear about leadership is leaders set the endpoint. They establish where you're going. How you get there will depend on the valleys or the, the obstacles that are in the way. So that's a really neat parable and neat uh, explanation. Yes, great illustration. What do you see as the greatest challenge of medical leadership moving forward? Well, I think this is a very challenging time for medicine, which means it's also an exciting time, but there will be a lot of change. This is not a time to be static. Uh, we have all kinds of new competitors in the healthcare field, companies like Amazon, CVS, uh, entering the field, a lot of private equity money from Wall Street purchasing primary care practices. So it's a, clearly a time of evolution. I mentioned earlier, we also have new technology coming on board. What will be the role of artificial intelligence? Now, our system strategy is we recognize that these companies coming into healthcare, places like Amazon, CVS, one thing they have in common is they're very good at being centered around meeting patient expectations or customer expectations. And so we recognize that as a healthcare system, the thing that we can do to differentiate ourselves is to be the most customer-centric, patient-centric healthcare system in existence. And I think that's going to be a challenge for us because traditionally we have designed healthcare around what works for us. Doctors decide what hours they want their clinic to be open, not patients. Hospitals offer services during the times that they want to staff shifts, but other services may not be available. And we need to learn how we can deliver the same high-quality health care in the manner that patients want it, when they want it, where they want it, and how they want it. We need to offer 
telemedicine options. We need to offer flexible hours. We need to have virtual care available 24-7. And so it's going to be a time of great change as we reinvent how we deliver our health care. And at the same time, recognize that we depend very much on our teams and we have to measure how much change we're asking and how we accommodate that change so we don't wear out or burn out our teams. We're going to have to learn how to work smarter, not just harder, and use new technologies and new services in order to meet our customer expectations while at the same time taking care of our teams. That's great. I mean, clearly what you're really describing is adaptability in addition to how to meet the expectations of the patient who is the customer. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that really resonates with me is that if you look at civilizations that have become extinct, it's because of the lack of adaptability of some forces that have occurred that have driven it to extinction and the uh, inflexibility of change. So thank you for that. If you had to recommend one book for surgeons to read, what would that book be and why? Well, first off, Harry, as a fellow colorectal surgeon, thank you for not asking me what coloring book I would recommend. <laughs> um, I know we sometimes don't get credit for being the, the intellectual part of the surgical field. But, um, no, it's a great question. There are so many good books out there that uh, have helped me. But I think one of the books that made the biggest impact uh, on my career was The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. And the reason is, is that we do work in teams. That's a, a change in healthcare over the past few decades, that it's no longer just a solo practitioner, an artisan who does things the way he wants. We are more likely to, nowadays to be employed. We work for systems. We have certain expectations we're expected to meet. We often have guidelines. We work in teams. If you're primary care, you may be working with a, a PA, you have an MA. Uh, as surgeons, we certainly work with surgical teams. And the first dysfunction described in this book is the absence of trust. The whole book, it's a very short, easy read. It's based on a fable, but it talks about you have to have trust. And by trust, it means vulnerability. The surgeon doesn't always have to pretend that they have the answer to every question. It's okay to ask for help. I think one of the most striking examples of this that really made a huge impression on me is the story of Chelsea Sullenberger, the pilot uh, who landed on the Hudson, the so-called miracle mm -hmm. on the Hudson. He lost both engines 3,000 feet above New York City, and he did everything right. He communicated with the air traffic controllers. He communicated with his flight attendants. He had his first officer start doing the emergency engine checklist to see if he could get the engines restarted. And he made a very snap decision that he couldn't make it to Teterboro. He couldn't get back to LaGuardia, so he was going to ditch it in the Hudson. And that's something you might do occasionally, I guess, on a simulator, but it's something nobody had ever done. He had never done in real life, and he pulled it off. Perfect landing, didn't lose a single life. But if you listen to the cockpit voice recorder, the last thing he said before they touched down on the water is he turned to his much more junior first officer and said, do you have any ideas? Now, he was one heck of a pilot. He's a real hero, obviously a skilled pilot, and yet he wasn't afraid to ask somebody much more junior if they had any other ideas just in case there was something he hadn't thought of. And so that's the importance of trust in getting a team to work well together. And so I think that book talking about how teams can work best together is key to helping us work with our teams to deliver the best possible health care. Any concluding remarks that you would like to make? Um, I mean, to, today has been absolutely fantastic. Your yes, grand rounds definitely. and 
and uh, our discussion here today. I just wanted to thank you for coming in. Uh, any any concluding remarks? Well, I'd just like to repeat the the key takeaways from our grand rounds this morning. Is first off, the system is all of us. The system is a complex healthcare delivery system uh, with over fifty thousand employees, or seven thousand physicians working in our hospitals. The system is not an entity. It's it's all of us together. It's a team. The second thing is Baylor Scott and White is an incredibly strong position, especially compared to our peer organizations. We're doing well financially, and we have excellent quality. We're top tier in terms of our quality and our financial performance. So we're not facing the future from a position of weakness. The third is that all of our young surgeons in training should be working to develop their leadership skills, which means consciously trying to see things from as many perspectives as possible, zoom out and see, try and see the big picture. So they'll be ready when a need comes up for them to step into a leadership position. And finally, I think we all have to work together as teams and accept that we, we need to be one big system to tackle all these challenges and deliver on our vision. We can't keep working in little silos. We, we are one big team and we need to work together. Walter, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, just really excited about uh, maintaining the partnership and then uh, doing what we can do to help the system, but to help you, to help other leaders within the organization in the hospital. So thank you. Yes, thank you, Dr. Peters, for joining us. It's been very enlightening. Dr. Papa, thanks for joining me as co-host today. It's been fun. That concludes this episode of Stats. Join us next time as we share the accomplishments of Temple Surgery.